0: If you have your Bible with you this morning, would you turn to John chapter 13, as we read what is one of the most poignant and moving passages in any of the Gospels, and it is entitled, Jesus Washes His Disciples' Feet. And most of you are aware that over these last couple of months of January and February, we have been steadily working our way through John's Gospel. And over the next couple of weeks, we are beginning to move into the final section of John's Gospel and focus on the death of Christ. And so we come to John 13 this morning to the upper room. It's a well-known passage and one we've looked at several times in the past. But it is unique to John. You don't find it in Matthew, Mark or Luke. And that's the case, in fact, with chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. All unique to John's Gospel. And so we begin chapter 13 at verse 1. It was just before the Passover feast. Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. "'wrapped a towel around his waist. "'After that, he poured water into a basin "'and began to wash his disciples' feet, "'drying them with the towel that he'd wrapped around him. "'And he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, "'Lord, are you going to wash my feet?' "'Jesus replied, "'You do not realize now what I am doing, "'but later you will understand.' No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, the person who has had a bath needs only to wash his feet. His whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth. No servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Amen, and we trust that God will bless to us this reading from his holy word. This time last Sunday I was travelling back from Egypt where I had been for the past six days teaching at a National Pastors Conference and as you can imagine that was a great delight for me to do that and I wanted to give you a brief update and first of all to say thank you for your prayers last week. It was deeply appreciated. Not only did I have the privilege of uh, ministering to and being ministered to by these pastors and elders but i also had a great deal of fun with them and you know me well enough to know i have a mischievous sense of humor and my translator has a phd from cairo theological seminary he was a first class uh, translator in fact he spoke in here at first press for us dr tharwat waba And I'm pretty convinced on two occasions when I was speaking, especially at the beginning of the seminars, I heard him say, "Our American guest has said something he thinks is funny. It is not. Please laugh anyway. And I'm pretty certain that they just laughed. And I thought, gosh, I'm popular with these guys. They're understanding my humor. This is wonderful. And then, of course, my suspicions arose in the course of the week. The other interesting fact is this that there are now 140 Egyptian pastors and a handful from the Sudan who think that every pastor from South Carolina speaks the way I do. And in years to come, when they meet up an actual pastor from South Carolina and hear him speak, I can see them looking at each other and saying, no, he's not the real deal. He didn't sound like Richard, I'm sure. That's not how he sounded. And so, of course, I had a lot of fun with that as well. So thank you for your prayers. They were very much appreciated. As we come to our study this morning, I wanted to begin with an illustration that I'm pretty sure I used on the Sunday when it happened. And way back in 2012, there was a rather unusual press conference held in London and it was with a Nobel Prize winner in medicine and his name was Sir John Gurdon. He came from the United Kingdom and he was asked in the course of that press conference had he always been good at science and in fact he said no I was not always good at science and in the middle of the conference he pulled out and read his school report from when he was a wee boy in 1949 and and he read it, and it said this. His work has been far from satisfactory. If he can't learn simple biological facts, he will have no chance of doing the work of a specialist. And it would be a sheer waste of time, both on his part and of those who had to teach him. And of course, when the teacher was writing that report, the teacher also knew a little more about young John than was letting on. In fact, he was not a good boy in school. The report goes on to say he'd been in trouble several times. He never listens. And in fact, he was bottom of the class because in the most recent class test, he had scored two out of a possible 50. And you think, oh my, that's not the best start. It's not a promising start for a Nobel Prize winner in medicine. And of course, teachers cannot see into the future and they only give to us a snapshot of what was happening at the time. And my question was this. Here was a teacher looking at a young life but could not see a Nobel Prize winner. And my question this morning as we get into this passage in John chapter 13 is this. When God looks at us, what does he see? What is he looking for? So please hold that thought in your mind as we come into John chapter 13. And you're going to see that theme develop as we get further and further into this passage Sunday mornings we often talk about the context of a passage. And as you come into John chapter 13, you come into the second major section of John's Gospel. And I think you will be fascinated to be reminded of this, that the first 12 chapters focused on three years of Jesus' life. But chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 all focus on the night before his crucifixion. Now, isn't that amazing? If you were to write a biography of someone you really admire, perhaps a sports personality, a singer, a person from history, would you spend five chapters the night before that person died? And what John is saying to his 1st century readers, and also as in the 21st century, is this. It's almost as if he's saying to us now, slow down. Pay attention. Don't be tempted to rush through this. There is far more going on here than you could ever imagine. So take a deep breath. Pause. Read. Read read slowly appreciate what is happening here because john is about to take us to a whole new level in our understanding of who jesus is and why he has come and of course he sets it in the context it was just before the passover feast is how he begins The Passover feast, as most of you are aware, was a celebration where the people of Israel from around what was then called the Mediterranean Basin, the known Roman world, would travel to Jerusalem. Population of Jerusalem in the first century was about a quarter of a million people, 250,000 folks. But at Passover time, it would jump to closer to a million or even a million and a quarter. It was a time of great celebration when families would get together, look back on their history and give thanks for the hand of God upon them as a nation and emancipating them from the tyranny and slavery of ancient Egypt. Imagine if we are looking for a modern parallel, perhaps the 4th of July when family and friends come over and we celebrate and give thanks for our history and that would be very similar in some ways if you arrive at someone's home on Passover or, of course, Thanksgiving or the 4th of July, the table is spread. The folks in the home have been preparing and thinking for several weeks. And in the days immediately before, they're thinking, what will they serve? How will they serve it? And in first century Israel, as you walked around the streets of Jerusalem, there was no sidewalks as we see today. It was mainly a dirt track. And when you arrived at someone's home for a Passover meal, the host or hostess would arrange to have a servant meet you as you came in. You would sit down. The servant would ask you to take off your sandals. You'd put them to one side. You would hold out your foot. And then they would pour water on your feet and dry them with a towel. So that when you sat at the table... You were refreshed and cleansed and comfortable and ready to enjoy the meal and the dust and the grime of the city was washed away. And that's exactly what you would expect. But here in this upper room, Jesus and his disciples were not going to an individual's home. They had rented a room. And I imagine that somewhere over to the side there would be a table with a towel and a pitcher of water, but no hostess to organize a servant to help, no one to make them feel comfortable. They simply went in, sat at table, and began to eat their meal. But please also note this. John gives us a much fuller picture of what is taking place because the temptation for us is to focus on the meal or only The washing of the feet of the disciples. And we'll come to that in a minute. But John encourages his readers to step back for a moment. Look at the much larger picture here. There is more going on here than you first imagine. And John tells us Jesus knew that the time had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father And having loved his own who were in the world, he now showed them the full extent of his love. And we're going to see that next Sunday and in future Sundays together. So John is saying, remember the larger context here. Jesus knows his time has come. Ominous words tells us that something else is happening here. And then as we go to verse 2, John writes, the evening meal was being served and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus. And now we know there is an additional component to what's taking place here. And in verse 3, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. And so he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist, and after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now can you imagine what was going through the mind of the disciples? I suspect there was an awkward Silence. These disciples had been to Passover meals before in people's homes in years gone by. They knew that was the role of the servant. I imagine not many of them said a great deal as Jesus came to each one with the pitcher and the basin and drying their feet. Can you imagine how they felt? Think of what was running through their minds Because over the last three years, they had watched him feed 5,000 people with two fish and five loaves. They had watched him transcend the power of nature as he walked on the Sea of Galilee in the midst of a storm. Last Sunday, we looked at John chapter 11, the raising of Lazarus. And the talk was everywhere that after three days he had brought Lazarus back to life. He had been teaching in the temple courts all week long. He had been impacting and transforming lives. And over the last three years, miracle after miracle after miracle, and now there they are sitting with their feet letting Jesus play the role of a servant to wash their feet. Can you imagine how awkward that was how difficult it was for them to try and get their mind around what is going on here and then notice what comes next he said to simon peter or he came to simon peter who said to him lord are you going to wash my feet And simon peter had been exposed to the majesty and grandeur and grace of God. And he knew who Jesus was. And it's typical of Peter, he speaks up when the others are quiet, and he says, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And notice what Jesus says. Jesus replied, you do not realize what I am doing, but later you will understand. Later you will understand. And Peter, I think, is one of our favorite Bible characters because I think we identify with Peter. He seems to grow in stages we can identify with. From time to time he makes mistakes and we look at our own life and we say, yeah, I probably would have done that if I had been Peter. But Jesus knew this. Jesus also knew that he had plans for Peter Peter couldn't imagine. Jesus knew that this disciple, Simon Peter, would go on to be an apostle. He would go on to write two New Testament epistles. He would be the leader of the apostolic band. He would become, to, he would come to be Peter the Rock, whom others could rely on. But that night, He was simply Peter. And as Jesus says to him, Peter, you don't understand what I'm about to do, but someday you will. That wasn't enough for Peter. Peter wanted an explanation. And I imagine Peter sitting there with his feet out, watching the others on either side. And when Jesus approaches him and he says, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? I imagine him pulling his feet in, trying to hide them to kind of turn away. No, no, it's okay. Okay. Why? Did Peter not want Jesus to see the dirt and grime that had been on his feet? Probably. Did he not want the Son of God to bow and wash his feet? Probably. But please remember, you do not realize what I am doing, but later you will understand This is not the first time Jesus has spoken to Peter in ways that Peter doesn't fully grasp or get. In fact, in John chapter 1, when Jesus meets Peter for the first time, he changes his name. He looks at him and he says to him, you are Simon, but you will be Peter. You are, but by my grace you will be. And here we are, three years later. It's now coming to fruition. Peter, you don't understand what I'm about to do, but someday you shall. And then Peter responds and says, Lord, unless... Lord, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. And that's typical of Peter, rash, impulsive, kind of jumping in before he knows what's happening. And let me ask this morning, has there been moments in your life when God has put his hand upon you and begun to work at a level you hadn't anticipated and he's taking you to that deeper level, and he's beginning to move into and impact areas of your life you never thought that he would. And you've wrestled with that and wondered, what is he doing, and why would he act in such a manner? And if you have ever found yourself there, could it be these words are for you? You do not understand what I am doing, but someday you shall. You are, but by my grace you will be. Ever been there? Ever wrestled with the purpose and will of God as to why he's acting in a particular manner at this particular time in your life? It's been that way since the first century as God in His grace begins to work in our lives. Begins to fashion and shape us. And within the next few hours Peter would be challenged. He'd be challenged by a wee girl when he's standing in the forecourt of Pilate's palace warming his hands. And a wee girl looks at him and says now I recognize you. You have a Galilean accent. I think you were the one who cut off the servant's ear in the garden. It was you. And then Peter says, you're mistaken. I don't know him. Starts to move away. Yes, it was you. I've heard, I saw you. No, you're mistaken. And three times he denies his Lord. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, Peter, there's going to come days that will be tough. Peter, there are going to be moments in your life you could not imagine, both challenging and blessing. But Peter, I need you in the midst of those moments, not simply to focus On the sin. I don't need you to focus on the defeat alone. I need you to look ahead. Peter I need you to remember. You are. But by my grace you will be. Peter I have plans for you plans to bless and encourage and equip and enable you and Peter you're not going to see it all at one time Peter dig deep Peter persevere Peter keep going keep going you may not understand it but someday you shall ever been there ever been frustrated and grieved over your own sin for the moments when you have betrayed him and sinned against him and hurt him and others around you. That's Peter. That's Peter. In fact, later on in John's Gospel, John 17, in fact, Jesus specifically prays for Peter and for all that's coming. And in fact, over dinner, he says to him, Peter, Satan has asked that he would sift you, test you, challenge you, see what you're really made of. But Peter, I have prayed for you. And in Romans chapter 8, halfway through the chapter, we read these words. That the Holy Spirit intercedes for us and prays for us when we don't know what to pray. He hears the sigh of our hearts. He hears our longings, our passionate desires. And He prays for us. Have you ever given that some thought? The Holy Spirit of God, God himself, is praying for you. And if you came this morning a little discouraged, please remember, you are, but by my grace you will be. And I'm praying for you. Frustrated about situations in your life that are out of your control, you can do nothing about He's praying for you. Disappointed about family relationships and where those relationships are going. He's praying for you. He's not answered prayers the way you thought. He's continuing to pray for you. You are not on your own. He will never abandon you or leave you. He is praying for you. And so as we see this remarkable event of unprecedented humiliation, Jesus washes the feet of his disciples. Please remember how the passage started. Jesus knew that his time had come. And for all the unprecedented nature of the humility of Jesus, there is more still to come. And over the next few hours, in fact, dark and difficult hours, dreadful hours, when God would place on His Son the sin of the world and pour His wrath out on His own Son at Calvary, The time had come God was fully at work. And which of us on that Friday afternoon would have looked up into the cross and shaken our head and said, How can God possibly be in this? He would never do such a thing. And there he was in all of his grace and grandeur and love fulfilling His purpose for humanity and working out and accomplishing our eternal salvation. It doesn't take a lot to imagine Jesus looking down and thinking in His own mind, you do not realize what I am doing, but someday you shall. All of that is wrapped up in here. Now, you may be sitting there this morning saying, Richard... I think I've got what you're trying to tell us. I think I'm understanding this passage a little better. But give me two or three things to take away this week. I know on Sunday morning you try to give us a greater appreciation of what happened in the Gospels, and I get that. But give me something to do. Give me something to hold on to this week. Well, let me try to do that. Number one, when God begins to work in our lives and metaphorically we find ourselves sitting in front of Jesus and he offers to cleanse and refresh us. Please never ever pull those feet in. Please don't turn away. Don't try to hide from him. There are no hidden compartments in our relationship with Christ. There are no places that are marked off limits. There are no locked doors. Because if we are ever to grow in our relationship with Him, it needs vulnerability. It needs transparency. It needs honesty. And He knows our every thought and desire anyway. He knows our every sin. He knows what's led up to it. He knows the repercussions of them. Don't hold back. Don't mark off limits. Number one. Secondly, verse 12. It's a simple, straightforward verse, but it's easy to miss it. When he would finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Now, at first glance, that seems a fairly straightforward verse. It's one we've read multiple times. It doesn't appear to have any kind of deep understanding or comprehension that we've missed. Read it again. When he had washed their feet. Do you understand what's happening? Do you grasp the enormity of those words? Their feet included Judas. Humility isn't selective. Judas, who was about to betray the Son of Man for 30 pieces of silver, who was about to have the audacity to kiss his friend on the cheek and betray him to Roman soldiers... And in incomprehensible love, he takes the feet of his betrayer and washes them and dries them. When he had washed their feet. And then verse 14 and 15, he says, Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. Let's pause there for a second. Wash one another's feet? Now I suspect if Jesus was here this morning sitting on this chair and asked you to wash his feet, you would do so in a heartbeat. I certainly would. I would go there immediately. He's my Savior, my Lord. He's transformed my life. He lavishes His love upon me. Of course I would wash His feet just as you would. There would be a long line of us waiting. But He doesn't ask them to wash His feet. He asks them to wash one another's feet. And you might be sitting there this morning saying, Richard, wait a minute. You've moved from standing on my toes to meddling here. Hold on. Are you really asking, are you really asking me to wash the feet of those I don't like? The people in my life who irritate the life out of me. My in-laws, I've never got on with them. They've never got on with me. They've never liked me. If I wash their feet, I'll make sure that's boiling water. I'll clean their feet. Tempted to think along those lines? Tempted to think maybe I'll dry clean instead the harshest possible cleaning agent. By all means, I'll use that. But here is Jesus saying to his disciples, if you are genuinely... Ready to do the hard work of living out the Christian life. It involves those you cannot stand. Those who irritate the life out of you. Those who perhaps have been mean and ugly to you in the past. Wash one another's feet. And now you're beginning to say, Richard, I know I asked for two or three things to take away, but I wasn't expecting that. Really? Is that what he calls us to? Yes, he does. That's the Christian life. That's what it means to dig deep. And finally, Jesus is not asking us to put on a seminar in which we examine biblical humility. He's not asking us to run a class on how to wash feet. He is simply saying, live out your faith. Be there for others. Dig deep in your relationships with those you don't get on with. Be courteous, be loving, be gracious, be kind. Be there for them. That's the point he's making. Live it out. Become the person I long for you to be. You are, but by my grace, you will be. That's the message of the gospel. That's what he calls us to. And maybe this week... We need to begin prayerfully saying, Father, begin with me. Change me. Cleanse me. Equip me. Let me live out my faith and dig deep for you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the love you lavish upon us. Thank you for your grace and your kindness and your equipping and your enabling. For we know we could never be the men or women you have called us to be without your hand upon us. So bless us this week as we live in light of your loving grace and humility towards us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.